Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Central European University in Budapest, Hungary. Only for a few more weeks, though, Kobus, before you have to head back to the heat of South Africa at Witts University in Johannesburg. Hi. A very good afternoon to you and a very good morning uh, in Washington, D.C., where we're joined by J.R. Maley, who is a research associate at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies. Uh, and if, you have, if you're not kind of keyed into the China-Africa kind of Twitter-verse, uh, you, would, you definitely need to find out what J.R. has been doing these past few months, I imagine. He just finished a, an amazing report uh, for, uh, on the Queensway Group, and it's called The Anatomy of the Resource Curse, Predatory Investment in Africa's Extractive Industries. Okay, so the title sounds a little bit boring. Trust me, this is really <laughs> worth reading. Uh, and really what he does, no offense, JR, please, you know, but it sounds very academic-y. We really want to sell this as really the drama. Kobus, he said it read like a novel, okay? And how many academic research papers kind of re- read like novels? Uh, yeah, none of mine. <laughs> well, so, JR, thank you so much for joining uh, joining us on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. Glad to be here. I'm a longtime listener, so this is great. Oh, we are flattered. That flattery does get you a long way with us, by the way. (laughs) Um, Let me just put a quick little disclaimer out there for for JR, because he's too polite to do it himself. Uh, The Africa Center for Strategic Studies is, in fact, uh, funded by the United States Department of Defense. uh, No, I'm sorry run by the U.S. Department of Defense, funded by the U.S. Congress. It's located at the National Defense University at Fort McNair in Washington, D.C. However, J.R. does note that he does not uh, represent those views, and his writing and his research are his opinions only. So uh, we'll kind of put that out there. So you're not speaking on behalf of the Pentagon here today. Yep. Okay, good. Now that we have that out of the way, let's kind of dive into what you did, uh, you know, for, for this really, really interesting research report. Let's kind of refresh people. We've talked about the Queensway Group, and the Queensway Group is this nefarious, kind of mysterious group based out of Hong Kong. Uh, 88 Queensway, in fact, is the address. And I think you were the one who kind of coined this term of the, the Queensway Group. Is that fair to kind of attribute that to you? I think that's fair. Okay. I was part of a team of congressional researchers that uh, coined that term. So actually, instead of me kind of summarizing the Queensway, who is in this office tower at 88 Queensway Road in Hong Kong that makes it so kind of complicated and the connection to Africa? So uh, located in those offices are, are at least uh, you know, the offices of two big Chinese companies, uh, China International Fund and China Sonengol, and those are sort of the anchors of a sprawling web of companies uh, that are controlled by a select few individuals. The two most important individuals within that group uh, are a man named Sam Pa, who goes by many aliases, uh, and a woman named Lo Fang Hang. Uh, over the past decade or so, they've been involved in a series of um, multi-billion-dollar deals in Africa and elsewhere around the world. Uh, that have been pretty controversial. Um, you know, some of the leaders of this group have been uh, alleged to, or reported to, have been involved in uh, arms trafficking, diamond smuggling, bribing high-level officials, posing as envoys of the Chinese state. Um, and there's some other challenges associated with with their investments. Um, you know, many of the the infrastructure projects they pitch, for example, uh, seem not to materialize. They're also in, involved in uh, you know quite a few natural resource deals that are extremely opaque. Uh, their, their business partners uh, or choice of business partners is also somewhat problematic at times. They tend to move into places uh, that are characterized by you know, minimal oversight institutions, centralized 
governance structures, they, for example, often turn up in, in places that are highly unstable, either experiencing or emerging from conflict or political crises. So uh, they signed you know, large-scale deals for oil, infrastructure, aviation, transportation with Guinea after a coup, Madagascar after a coup, Niger after a coup. They moved into Zimbabwe shortly you know, after the post-electoral crisis of 2008 began. Um, you know, they've turned up in places like Central African Republic, South Sudan, they invest in North Korea and Russia. And, you know, there are just very minimal details about what's going on with their operations. And it's really, really difficult to scrutinize them. Um, so, you know, there, there's been, uh, been every now and then there's a, a report comes out about the the Chinese International Fund and, you know, kind of about, about these companies. Um, can you give us an idea about what what you found, what what has been different from the, from some of the previous work that has been done on them? Well, you know, I, I, I'm a scholar, so a lot of my work is dependent upon uh, the reporting by journalists and so forth. Um, but, you know, I, I think the framing of my report is a little bit different. I don't look at this as necessarily a China and Africa question that much. as more of a, a natural resource curse question. Um, so, you know, I've tried to look at the uh, structural factors that allow these companies to operate with near impunity. So that's the biggest thing. Um, and really, I've tried to probe uh, their you know, corporate structure and, and look at how they uh, exploit loopholes in the international financial system in order to kind of remain just beyond the reach of law enforcement. I've also looked at their relationship with some mainstream international banks and Western corporations. I've tried to flesh out a little bit more details about their past um, and to you know highlight uh, some of the you know, peculiarities of their relationship with Beijing. Um, so... You that, that's, I guess, what's new. Yeah. Well, you, you, let me just read uh, a line that, that really stood out for me. You said, in many ways, the prototypical, this is uh, the Queensway group you're talking about, the prototypical predatory investor. Queensway frequently appears in resource-rich states in Africa where it can operate with high levels of opacity. Um, that's very interesting. So you kind of pointed out the fact that this is places like Angola, Zimbabwe, uh, even again, you, you talked about in Asia, North, North Africa and things like that. Give us a sense of the scale. How important is this, is, is what the, 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 the Queensway group does relative to the overall China-Africa relationship? Well, first, the, the general caveat there is that it's, it's almost impossible to tell the scale given the, the limited disclosure by these companies. Um, but you know, the the figures that I've seen for a few deals, they're, they're in the billions of dollars. They're often bigger than the GDP of the countries in question, right? So in Guinea, it was a $9 billion deal that they you know, supposedly signed in, in uh, mid-2009. In Zimbabwe, it was around the same size. In Angola, I mean, we're likely talking well over $10 billion in projects that they've uh, been involved in. Um, and it, the level at which Sampa and others play is, is another important feature uh, of this group. Um, you know, so if you can't kind of quantify their investments because of opacity, you can see that Sam Pa, even in my report, is pictured with several heads of state. I mean, he's had meetings with at least half a dozen heads of state around the world. That's that's pretty impressive for any businessman, especially one with his reputation. Um, so this, they're serious, serious players on the continent. And, you know, kind of one of the things that I found very valuable about the report, um, and, you know, kind of I think you you, you were quite modest about, you, you know, about all of the, what's new about what, what one of the things that I found really new and really interesting to read was your, you spend a lot of of time and you know kind of you you look in a lot of detail at the mechanisms that actually allow this 
this group to actually function in Africa, and especially also the the particularities of the deals that they make with these particular African governments. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what what are some of these mechanisms like? What allows a, a you know kind of a, a group a, a predatory invest investor group like like the Queensway Group to actually to to be able to make these crazy deals in the first place? Well, you know, a lot of it is is positioning, right? So. Uh, the leaders are very good at gaining high-level access in resource-rich, fragile states. I mean, they do that through a few different uh, sort of tactics or strategies. Um, they approach uh, African or foreign diplomats based in Beijing with high-level connections in a target country, and that's a pathway in, in certain places. Uh, that seems to be how they got to North Korea, Guinea. Um, Sampai used that strategy, it seems, to deal with the EPLF and Eritrea while it was still a rebel movement in the 80s. So that's that's certainly uh, one of their go-to plays. But they also use kind of well-connected Western businessmen that operate in each country um, uh, who, who sort of already have the network, right? So in Angola, they famously kind of dealt with Elder Batalia, a Portuguese banker, uh, who was already well-established um, and you know used his network and influence. Um, in other places, they've used consulting firms or, or individuals who are actually family members of... Uh, heads of state, right? So in Russia, they enter the country uh, with the help of a consulting firm uh, owned by a certain Roman Putin, uh, and that consulting firm is called Putin Consulting, and he is a cousin of the president. In Congo Brazzaville, their businesses, uh, you know, are joint ventures with the president's son, Denny Cristel Sassungueso. Um, so they certainly know how to get access. They also just have an incredible Rolodex, right? So they, you know, have this. Uh, set of partners that are not only Chinese. I mean, they have high-level access, uh, Chinese state-owned companies, but you know the ties to a bunch of Western banks. Um, they have uh, access to a wide range of suppliers, partners, commodity buyers. They, they do business with Glencore. Uh, they have a fleet of Airbus jets, and they've you know met very closely with people at the, at least the vice president level uh, at Airbus. Um, but ultimately, the, you know, I think. The biggest uh, mechanisms that allow them to operate like they do are ones that allow them to operate with secrecy. So, you know, embedding confidentiality clauses in contracts, right? Um, that That's really important for them. I've been looking at their operations in Angola for seven years, and I have never seen a single contract pertaining to their investments. Um, that, that's, I mean, that's almost baffling. I mean, the other, the other issue is secrecy jurisdictions, right? So, um, Sampa is known to have at least seven aliases. Uh, he controls probably well over 100 companies around the world in many uh, legal jurisdictions. His name doesn't appear on any corporate filing for any of the companies pertaining to China International Fund or China Sonengold that are operating now in, in Africa. I mean, it, it's, it's almost impossible to, you know, with 100% certainty for an investigator in one of these countries to tie him to uh, these investments, and that that's huge. It helps uh, it helps them move money with ease. It helps them kind of stay just below the radar, and it's it's really kind of a devastating loophole in the international economic system. But should we be surprised? And I guess the reason why I ask this is that now the Chinese have companies that are sufficiently large to be able to play in this massive corporate arena, uh, whereas thirty years ago they didn't. But is this and, and let me just kind of put a, a case out there. I mean, is this any different than the Bush family and the Saudi royal family or Omar Bango 
and in in Gabon and and his ties to the Charles de Gaulle, you know, in the Elysee Palace. Um, you know, the the French, the British. The Americans, the Dutch with Royal Dutch Shell in Nigeria have been doing something very similar, if not um, even worse, on a much larger scale. And this is not to excuse the Queensway Group, but it is to try and place it in a broader context of how countries work. It seems that every country has their sampa. Uh, Al Jazeera did some fantastic reporting on the the interlocutors between Paris and and Gabon and some and, and the French colonies, uh, who were kind of funneling money and making the oil deals and and the lack of transparency that's there. So in in some ways, Sam Pa represents the arrival of the Chinese as part of the corporate state that's behaving really consistent with the activities of other corporate states. Uh, you know, I was talking to. Cobus before the show saying, when I was reading what you were writing, it reminded me of Goldman Sachs, because Goldman Sachs, <laughs> in many ways, operates beyond the jurisdiction of law enforcement and governance. What Goldman Sachs did in Greece, what Goldman Sachs has done in many parts of the world, uh, is extrajudicial in many respects. Uh, and the United States can't crack down on Goldman Sachs, even if it wanted to. You know, I think that's an excellent point. Um, many of the, the practices that Sam Pa and others uh, employ, you know, they're not uniquely Chinese, right? Um, a lot of these, a lot of these uh, dynamics have been at play, um, you know, for well over a century, right? Uh, Sam Pa, to me, reminds me of the likes of, you know, Arkady Gaidemak and Victor Boot. Um, and there was recently a profile in, in Bloomberg of a, a French man named Jean, Jean-Yves Olivier, um, who's involved in Congo Brazzaville and elsewhere. Uh, so, you know, for, for, decades, there have been these brokers that kind of operate on the margins of the international system and help uh, kind of arrange deals that that people don't really hear about that much. And these are deals that have a really large impact on the citizens of the countries involved. Um, you know, and I mentioned Victor Boot and Arkady Gaidemak, and, you know, really all, all these folks tend to have three things in common. You know, first, they really understand how to get close to elites and fragile states and to sort of uh, gravitate to places where there are minimal oversight institutions, where civil society and the press are are you know, restricted severely. Um, you know, they they understand how to operate in countries where the rule of law isn't so strong to begin with. The second thing is they tend to have top cover back home. Um, you know, Victor Boot, for example, had you know quite a few connections in the Kremlin, and I mean, I think they've even uh, you know, been outspoken uh, that he should be released from prison. Um, Just remind us very quickly, who is Victor Boot? Victor Boot is kind of the notorious Russian arms trafficker who Ah, inspired the the, the movie uh, Lord of War. That's right. um, uh, Who, you know, famously kind of trafficked arms uh, to quite a few conflict zones in Africa, especially in the 1990s. Um, You know, and and I guess the final, the third and final similarity that all these folks have is they, they really know how to game the international system in order to operate uh, with complete secrecy and stay just beyond the reach of law enforcement, like you said about Goldman Sachs and so forth. I mean, uh, their accountants and lawyers are very good at structuring their business deals so that they can't be traced back to them. And that, that's a, a really big challenge. Um, so, you know, kind of you, you mentioned, you know, one factor is the fact that they have, that these companies tend to have cover at home. Um, what what is the nature of of the kind of relationship between between the Queensway Group and the Chinese government? Like, how how much cover is the Chinese government actually giving them? Well, you know, it, it it's a really complex relationship. Um, you know, there are sort of 
these kind of undeniable linkages that exist, right? Uh, you know, Lo Fang Hung, one of Sampa's main business partners, is the the daughter of a Chinese general. Her husband is a a banker at a you know at China Development Bank, one of the most important banks in the country. Um, she you know reportedly has bragged about um, you know, being a translator for Deng Xiaoping. Uh, Sampa has been reported to have been a, a Chinese spy in the 80s and 90s. Um, uh, the, their other partner initially was a man named Wu Yang, who used the Chinese Ministry of Public Security as his residential address on corporate filings. And then they also have you know, quite a few Chinese state-owned companies as their partners. Um, Sinopec was the guarantor of a $3 billion loan that they received in 2005 that essentially seems like their startup capital. Um, and they have persistent relationships with Sinopec to this day. Uh, many of the companies contracted for their construction projects are Chinese SOEs, not exclusively, but many are. Uh, and this isn't to say they, they work exclusively with Chinese companies at all. Uh, they also have individual you know, relationships, it seems. They're able to get meetings with high-level Chinese government officials um, you know, seemingly with ease. Um, you know, they, they were able to arrange, for example, a meeting between Manuel Vicente and uh, Vice Premier Zhang Peiyan in 2000. Uh, five, um, and you know they sort of play at that level to this day. Um, you know, with all that said, uh, there are many corners of the Chinese government that seem really not to like these folks uh, very much. Um, there, there in at least five or six countries, Chinese diplomats have been outspoken that you know they can't vouch for these deals. The Chinese government has nothing to do with it. Uh, their deals aren't good. Um, you know, in, in Angola, in Guinea, in Zimbabwe, in uh, Argentina. And I believe in Venezuela as well. And they, they say they don't want anything to do with it or they don't have anything to do with it. But business partners really seem to think that these folks have official Chinese backing. Uh, you know, many of the folks I've talked to and many of the, the people that have spoken publicly about this seem to say, you know, yeah, we were brought to Beijing and we were kind of, you know, they rolled out the red carpet and we met with government officials. We met with people from state-owned companies. Um, and, you know, uh, we, we believe that we were talking to uh, companies that had the endorsement of the Chinese state. Um, but there have been investigations by Chinese government entities uh, into their operations. Uh, in October 2011, I believe it was, Saishin Magazine uh, said that they found a Chinese Ministry of Commerce investigation that claimed uh, the Queensway Group bribed high-level officials overseas and was posing as phony envoys of the Chinese state. Uh, it also said that you know they were really harming China's reputation abroad, which I think is true. I think these companies really do China's image a disservice in a lot of the countries where they operate. Yet, you know, nothing has been done. It seems to really rein their operations in, or there's been no formal punishment handed down. And that's the the big question. So, you know, we used to ask, is this is this a Chinese government operation, right? Is this profit-driven or geopolitically driven? Well, that, that's the wrong question. It's what is the responsibility of the Chinese state? And you know, when, when companies anchored in its territories are behaving like this overseas, and ultimately, you know, they, they have an anti-bribery law uh, that was came into force in May 2011, and they don't seem to have acted upon it. So really, to me, this is a case of oversight failure, um, as opposed to you know top cover necessarily. The relationships they have with senior officials well, aren't necessarily clear. Let's let's not put it in the context of law because law in 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 in, a, in, in the Chinese system is a very flexible kind of thing. Whereas I think there's a political angle to this that that is you know in the past 24 months has changed the entire game, which is Xi Jinping's anti-corruption crackdown. 
and I'm curious to think that you know he people like Sam Pa. They may be harming overseas, but they're also probably involved in questionable things in Beijing as well. And it would be interesting to see, and I know you can't possibly have the answer for this, but it would be very interesting to see if the crackdown reaches to the Queensway group, uh, because it has really sent a chill through a lot of the people who behaved, you know, in this imperious way for so long. Uh, to be so flagrant in terms of having pictures of, of leaders when you don't necessarily represent the government, to be, you know, slushing money back and forth that's unaccountable. Uh, that makes – it strikes me that if he does not have the proper alliances, at least with the Xi camp or people very, very high up allied with Xi, that he is potentially vulnerable to, to being taken out. I think you make a great point, uh, Eric. Um, you know, but the one – I'm not a sinologist. Uh, let me be clear. I'm I'm an Africa specialist, and, and at that, I'm a corruption specialist. Uh, so I've looked at a lot of anti-corruption campaigns, um, and you know, there's there's sort of a telltale sign of you know when when they're going to start to work or not, right? And are there allies of the regime that are uh, sort of falling? Um, and I don't see that in China. Yeah, that's the big criticism of the Xi crackdown is that he's going after his enemies. I mean, he, the, the net is very very wide right now. But people suspect that it's tilting a little bit more towards his enemies. Um, I wonder if I could, you know, kind of also then drag that in in the Africa direction. Um, you know, kind of what what do you think? Oh, this is such a, <laughs> such a hopeless question to ask. But what what should African publics do? You know, kind of like what what are what are they? The options, um, you know, kind of in the report, you you call for more transparency, which I which I you know kind of I support, obviously. Um, but I also was while I was reading that, I was also wondering, you know, kind of in cases in in countries like Guinea, for example, where where the the rate of adult literacy is so low, uh, you know, kind of how how valuable would something like transparency be, you know, kind of in in terms of of, of generating any kind of response from from the public. So I um, I quote a Nigerian uh, think tank report in in my study, um, and it, it's being critical in this in this case of an EITI audit uh, that, that that EIT audit can't just be you know the, the end in and of itself that you need civil society and and journalists in order to uh, sort of art- articulate the the big challenges and get the word out and be creative about how you get the word out. Um, so that's, I mean, in in all the societies that I'm uh, writing about, you know, there there are ways of of disseminating uh, things to the public at large, um, but you know, the governments in place have an incentive to sort of restrict uh, civil society and the press from operating freely. So it's not really just about uh, literacy, right? That's that 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 may obscure the point a little bit. You know, in Guinea, I found uh, that civil society activists and you know members of the government were criticizing these deals. Uh, I quote a memo from the prime minister's office that you know was a really probing criticism of the contract they'd signed with uh, CIF and China Sonegal. So the the capability and the capacity to dissent is there. It's it's that these folks are muzzled uh, often when they speak up, and that's that's the bigger problem. Yeah, I mean, you know, kind of, I, I think I, I, I did express myself. You were right, express myself badly. The problem, the problem, you know, kind of the, that I see is, you know, the issues, issues with, with the, the 
public's capability, not only not capability, but also like the the amount of time they have in a day and the amount of energy they have left after life in Guinea, or for example, or Angola, um, to not only process this information but to actually call for change. I think you know that that the the, the limited amount of energy that's left after after twenty four hours of life there that that's one issue. The other issue I think is as you said, you know, kind of the there are people there who can process the stuff, and there are people who can who can uh, who can criticize it and who can call for change. My feeling is more the the bigger problem I see is that there aren't really then mechanisms that kick into action once that call has been made. You know, kind of that the the um, the the next you know, three or four steps that it would take to actually then lead to some form of, of action, some form of prosecution or some form of like cancelling the contract. Those missing steps, you know, those steps are missing. Um, and, you know, and, and that, that was what I was trying to get to, that, you know, kind of that, that the system of, of public response is is flawed on a bunch of different key moments, you know, kind of in, in that chain. Yeah, I think that's a, that's, that's a really strong point. Uh, Cobus, um, you know, one thing I'd say that it's important, and Guinea is a great example of this. It's important to identify windows of opportunity for change, right? So Guinea had a, a transition. in Two thousand ten, a democratic, democratically elected government comes in. Um, at that point, kind of tackling corruption needs to be a priority. It's often cast aside because of you know worries that it's going to undermine, uh, you know, fragile political deals um, and, and sort of alter equilibrium. Uh, and those unsavory uh, discussions that need to be had are, are dangerous in, in places of, of fragility. Um, but but it's important. I mean, those are really important windows of opportunity. Guinea has pushed through some important changes since uh, its new government's come to power. They're not comprehensive and they're not, you know, a silver bullet. Well, the report is The Anatomy of the Resource Curse, Predatory Investment in Africa's Extractive Industries. It's some of the best reading that you're going to do on China-Africa relations. Uh, Invaluable, actually. You really cannot understand the Sino-African relationship without understanding this aspect of it, the more nefarious, the dark side of, of the investment. It's also a great companion to a new book by a former guest of ours, actually, The Looting Machine by Tom Burgess, which just came out. Tom is a, a correspondent for the Financial Times, and he's writing on, again, this issue of corruption, not specifically Chinese corruption per se, but these these seem to go very well together in terms of the resource curse in the, in Africa's extractive industries. Uh, JR, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. If people want to find the report and download it, what's the best way they can do that? Uh, they can go to the Africa Center's website, uh, africacenter.org, um, and then look in the publications section on the website, and it'll be there. Um, and I've also kind of posted it on my uh, Twitter account quite a few times, um, at MailyJR. Um, and I also would plug Tom Burgess's book, which I think this you know, reads even more like a novel. It's it's almost stranger than than fiction. It's it's an incredible read and really helps to capture uh, some of the more challenging dynamics at play in the natural resources. There you sector. go. Two novel like nonfiction reads. You don't get that very often. Now, once again, that's Maley M A I L E Y J R on Twitter. Um, Kobus, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you? I'm on Twitter at Stadenesk. That's S T A D E N E S Q U E. And I'm also you'll see me regularly on our Facebook page, which is. 
facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And Copus and I are updating that Facebook page, believe it or not, almost 24 hours a day. So if you want to stay on top of China Africa news, it's a fantastic way to kind of get a news feed going in your own personal news feed. Also, we've got a, an email newsletter that we send out every Monday with the top China Africa stories, really about four or five stories, not too many, uh, plus uh, a podcast and an academic article. And we are definitely going to put... Uh, JR's article as our academic article of the week this week in the news in the in the newsletter. Uh, and unless if you'd like to follow this podcast, we'd love to uh, have you sign up for us on uh, on iTunes. Just uh, look for China Africa. But you can also find us on the China File website, the fantastic China website produced by the Asia Society, and on SoundCloud and Stitcher as well. We'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>